Welcome to Pathway to Purpose, a podcast designed to help people live life to the fullest, chart their own path to purpose, and learn from the hardest moments in life and go from surviving to thriving. This podcast is dedicated to learning about health, hope, happiness, no matter what challenges you face. You learn to use your biggest challenges to heal and connect to your purpose and mission in life. And welcome to the show. All right, welcome. I am super excited. You know, millions of people around the world spend a few minutes in quiet reflection with Karen Casey every day. Affectionately known as the godmother of women in recovery, Karen is a best-selling author of Each Day a New Beginning, Daily Meditations for Women, the first daily meditation book written expressly for women in recovery from addiction, and the best-selling author of 30 books that her first book that each day a new beginning became a bestseller and uh women in recovery and i am honored to have you on karen and welcome oh thank you todd i i am just delighted to be here and honored that you invited me oh that is that is awesome so tell me just a little bit about your story, like where you grew up and kind of what led you, okay. you know, what led you on this, this path for okay. sure. Well, I, I grew up in, in Indiana, Lafayette. And, um, I, uh, I was born in 1939. I won't give you all the details, but I'm not a young person anymore. I'm 83, uh, be 84 and not very far from now, which is hard to believe. But I grew up and uh, I had two older sisters and a younger brother. It was not an alcoholic family, but it was a very, um, my father was a very angry person. And he mm -hmm. was angry because he was very fearful. I came to know as I got into recovery and then interviewed each of my parents. But, but how it felt in the family was that you were always walking on eggshells. And so it was a lot like growing up in an alcoholic family when you never knew what one parent or the other was maybe gonna do or say. So it was very uncomfortable and it never felt like a family that you could turn to one another for, for the kind of comfort you were seeking. And, um, and you know, they, I know that they were doing the best they could, you know, they each had their own struggles. And, you know, this was tough times that I grew up in. You know, this was 39 uh, was before the Second World War. You know, people were trying to recover from the depression. These were not easy times. And, um, and anyway, I um, realized that I always seemed to be on the lookout for how others were looking at me. I always seemed mm. to be watching others to see if I was okay. And I've often thought as I've gotten older and became familiar with codependency and Al-Anon and then AA, it, it feels as though I was born codependent. You know, I was born mm -hmm. really seeking what I couldn't find in my family. And, and as a matter of fact, when I... Um, after I got sober, I interviewed each of my parents 
about their lives and found out from my mother that, uh, and she was tearfully telling me, and it was a secret she had held all of the years, I was about 38 then, she had not wanted me when she was carrying me because her first two pregnancies mm. had been so difficult. But that was not anything she could ever talk about. You know, she couldn't reveal that to my dad or she would have been just shamed unbelievably so because, because that's kind of who he was. You know, he was so quick to shame people when they weren't living up to his expectations. But at any rate, at age 13, I took that first drink. And I took it because alcohol was readily available throughout the whole family. There were plenty of alcoholics hanging from uh, tree branches on both sides of the family. So there was always uh, alcohol. And so I, I mixed myself a Coke and whiskey and thought, oh my gosh, this is the answer. This- At 13, at 13, at 13, at 13 years old. At 13, you know, it, it was, I suddenly didn't feel as though I was constantly looking to others. In that moment, I, I felt that sense of comfort that I hadn't felt before. Now, I didn't become a daily drinker from 13 on. You know, that's pretty hard to do, or at least at that period of time. I think today, kids more easily become drinkers and drug users <laughs> at a very early age. But I did know that alcohol was, would bring me solace. And so whenever mm -hmm. I had a chance, I certainly sought it. And, but I also sought the, the comfort of having a, a partner, a boyfriend, who would, who would make me special. I wanted to feel noticed and special. I wanted to feel as though I mattered because in my, my own family struggled with so many issues, uh, even though alcohol wasn't a huge issue in the family. As I said, my dad wasn't alcoholic, nor was my mom but they grew up in, in circumstances that um, were very difficult, each of them. And so, um, so I was always looking for somebody to say, you know, I'm, I'll comfort you. And so of course, you know, I mean, that's kind of the classic, uh, classic definition of a codependent, always looking to somebody else to make them feel better. You know, there's that, and then the codependent who is always trying to fix somebody else. But I always have thought that that trying to fix somebody else was ultimately so that I would be fixed. You know, that, that it really wasn't, I mean, ultimately it all came back to me. It always comes back to the codependent, whatever the codependent is trying to do, I think. But at any rate, I thought, well, if I had the perfect boyfriend, or I had the perfect, ultimately the perfect husband, then it's going to be okay. Well, I, I made one poor choice after another. In my first 12-year marriage, uh, I got married when I was a senior at Purdue, and we both had um, severe drinking problems. His um, was worse than mine, <laughs> uh, at least from my perspective. And um, and, and he acted out a lot with his drinking, which included a lot of infidelities. 
So after 12 years, that ended. And of course, I went from that marriage, as you can imagine, uh, and as your listeners can imagine, I went from that marriage choosing other people similar in many respects to him because alcohol had become such an important part of my life. And, but that, you know, I look at my life, Todd, as though, even though there was a lot of pain and struggle from the time I was a kid uh, until I got deeply uh, embedded in recovery, there was a lot of pain and struggle, but I look at all of it as absolutely the stepping stones that were necessary for me to end up where I am today talking to you. You know, I, I don't think that we have any accidental detours. We have detours and maybe they don't feel good, but I think ultimately hindsight allows us to see that in one way or another, they were really quite perfect because of the door that they opened for us. So I ended up after Bill left our 12 year marriage, left, I might add, for another woman who was already pregnant. I had not been able to have children and she was already uh, pregnant for their first of uh, four children. Uh, but, but the interesting thing about that is that, well, two things. Number one, I, I sought people just like him to fill that space. In fact, do you know that I didn't even tell my family that he left when he first left? Mm -hmm. I, when I think back on that, I didn't even tell them that he had walked out. And I went home to visit and I still didn't tell them that he had left. And it was because, and probably some of your listeners can relate to this, I was afraid they would say to me, well, what did you do wrong? Mm. And, and, you know, I mean, that was the kind of family, really, that I grew up in. What did you do wrong to cause that? So, so let, me ask, yeah. let me ask you a couple questions. Yeah. So 13 years old, you take a drink. It gives you some ease and comfort. And I have to be honest. Um, I grew up with alcoholism in my family and and I know we talked off camera a lot about it. So I'm very familiar with a lot of this. And when you shared that, I did the same darn thing in seventh grade. I snuck a bottle of, of whiskey out in the, in, in the woods so I could feel better. I was, you know, and I just wanted to share that. I don't want to take it away from your story, but it did kind yeah. of, you know, I could totally relate. So Throughout this journey for your, you know, when you were married, you got married. Now, did you have episodes where you were drinking kind of heavy and you were like, oh, my God, like, you know, what kind of drinking were you doing at the time? I was always drinking very, very heavily. But, you know, I, okay. uh, I didn't have uh, I didn't seem to have the same kind of acting out behavior that he did. And I didn't, mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I was a Jack Daniels drinker. So I, I, I loved whiskey on ice. You know, I never, um, I mean, I didn't ever waver from that much. But, mm -hmm. and I was oftentimes later in my drinking career, 
starting every morning with brandy in my coffee because that was kind of what pulled me together to go off and do my day. But I, um, you know, I didn't, he found, he had terrible hangovers, I didn't. He found himself incapable of doing so much that was expected of him. And that isn't what mm -hmm. happened to me in that 12 year marriage. You know, uh, I ended up teaching school and then ultimately starting graduate school. And he never finished his doctorate at the University of Minnesota. And I had never ever planned to go to graduate school. That was the farthest thing from my mind. And when he left, it was like, well, I wonder what, and I was still drinking, you know, my whole life was still drinking, but I was, I was definitely a high functioning alcoholic. And so, and, and it wasn't that I was sipping wine. I always thought people who drank wine were not, were not really drinkers. You know, if you're not drinking whiskey, forget it. And so, uh, I mean, that's really how I looked at it. And, um, sure. but at any rate, um, when he left, it was like, oh, what should I, maybe I should do something different with my life. And I, as an undergraduate, I hadn't been a great student because I was such a partier. You know, I'd been put on social probation at Purdue because I was in, I, I stayed out all night. I was in fraternities all night. I was doing things that I shouldn't do. So, you know, it's a, it's a wonder I graduated. But when I applied for graduate school, here at the University of Minnesota, they turned me down because my undergraduate record wasn't very good. And they said, now mm. you can reapply. You take graduate classes and you reapply. And I got all A's when I, and, and reapplied and got in. And so kind of the irony of it all is I had never ever planned to go to graduate school. And that had been his absolute goal. He was not able to go ahead and finish it because he could never write the papers. I discovered in graduate school, even drinking copious amounts daily and teaching at the university at the same time, that writing for me was like falling off a log. I, I could, I mean, it was just, it, it was, I, I never thought of it as a gift, certainly. I didn't quite understand mm -hmm. the fact that I could just sit down and, and write. And, um, and so the irony is that I got the doctorate and I had never planned to do that at all. And, and poor Bill finally flunked out. And um, I, I, you know, it's like our paths went different ways. He became a politician here in, in uh, Minnesota, which was really good. He did good things. Uh, but it, the interesting thing is from the time that I got sober in 1976, we met to have coffee. And um, it was my desire to have coffee with him uh, to make amends. But really, I was hoping mm. he would say to me, you know, Karen, I, I really was so out of line in our marriage. And his response instead was, I always knew you were sick. <laughs> So, so, so let me let me ask you a question so yeah. we'll back up a little bit you had gotten divorced what year was that roughly and like it's how old 72 you? 72 and so and, and 
people didn't get divorced too much then, right? Is that, am I correct by saying? Oh, I think, oh, I think a lot of people did. Oh yeah, I don't think that was so unusual, okay. but we got divorced. And of course I went, as I said, I went from, from him um, into one poor choice relationship after another. I was in graduate school. I was functioning at a very high level in graduate school. Uh, I was uh, drinking. I was sitting on bar stools every night. Uh, but I, it was, um, it was magical. I mean, I, I look at that. I look back at that and think, you know, that was such evidence of somehow God had a plan for me that I knew nothing about. And, um, and I never had been able to have children. And so I think that, you know, I've always thought about the fact that I gave birth to books, you know, that that was really what the direction for my life was supposed to be, even though I didn't know it. But I um, had reached a point in graduate school and, and I had been in relationships with a couple of people where their counselor, they got into to treatment and their counselors said to me, you need to go to Al-Anon. And I think that that's really what breaks the chain for some people. And one counselor in particular looked at me and said, you know, I see all these wrinkles in your forehead. And that tells me that you spend an awful lot of time worrying about this man. You need to go to Al-Anon. And so I went to my first Al-Anon meeting in 1974. And uh, I, I had no idea what to expect. I had never heard of Al-Anon before. And I, I walked in and it was this room of about 30 people, men and women. And I, there was an instantaneous comfort level. It was kind of like that first drink at age 13, where I thought, oh, this this feels good. This will take care of me. When I went into that meeting and I sat there and I felt totally accepted. I had never been into, walked into a room of strangers before where I felt, where I wasn't focused on what are they thinking of me? How do they feel about me? What do I need to do to make them like me? You know, my focus was always out there instead of in here until I went to that Al-Anon meeting. And, um, and it was, I didn't know, I mean, I looked at the steps and the traditions on the wall though, and I thought, oh, I don't know if this can ever work for me because I, I didn't believe in God. And um, I mean, that changed definitely in my life. But at that point I didn't believe in God. And I thought, you know, if this is that kind of a program, I don't think it's gonna work for me, but it felt so good that I kept going. And that very first meeting, they were just so kind and caring. And they sent me home, ironically, they sent me home with a little meditation book from Al-Anon, one day at a time in Al-Anon. And I don't mm. know if you're familiar with it, but uh, I had never seen a page a day meditation book in my life. And it was of course published by Al-Anon family headquarters. And I took it home. And I read it from cover to cover and thought, I've got this, um, I've got this, you know, no problem. 
I'll be able to get him stopped drinking real soon. I totally missed the point. Totally missed the point. And but and I went back that next week and they oh. said, now, how are you? And I said, oh, I'm just fine. I finished the book. <laughs> they, they all laughed and said, well, now start over and read it one page a day. And they, it makes me laugh whenever I think about the fact that ultimately I became a writer of meditation books where people read them one page a day when I had never heard of such a concept in my life. But, you know, um, that relationship didn't, didn't survive. And then, of course, I was in another one. And, um, and again, it was a poor choice. You know, I mean, I was still, even with Al-Anon, I was still so focused on finding that perfect partner that was going to make me feel the way I needed to feel. And I thought if I could only change him, then I'll be okay. And so that's what it was totally about for me, trying to figure out how to change somebody else so that I would be okay. That the idea of detaching from others and letting them have their own journey was absolutely beyond my capability to imagine at that period of time. And I, I ended up in this, he and I, that relationship, Fortunately, didn't survive, but we ended up in a in a couples um, uh, counseling group, and there were six couples, and um, every week I showed up, and he never came, and we were to meet for six sessions with these couples, and every week a couple would tell their story and get feedback, and the counselor, and and every week. And any codependent listening to this will, will understand what I'm saying. Every week, I would have even a better excuse for his absence than the week before because I didn't want it to look bad that he had not shown up with me because of what that would say about me. So mm -hmm. finally, that last week, she said, why don't you tell us your story? And so I began to share a little bit about myself Never, never, Todd, did it occur to me that she was going to say, I think you have a problem with alcohol. And I think maybe you need to go to AA. But that is indeed what she said. And then I was gonna I was gonna ask you that. I was I was wondering if you were going to the Al-Anon meeting still drinking, you know? Oh yes. When I was going to Al-Anon, I was still drinking because I didn't think I was alcoholic. I mean. He was. Right. And, um, yeah. you know, and, and I mean, lots of Alan people drink for that matter. And um, yeah. I mean, I'm, I, I know I go to, as I said, I go to Alan on meetings now two a week. And oftentimes we'll go out after the meeting for a supper. And, and many of and uh, one of the groups is all women. And many of the women will have a glass of wine with dinner. You know, they all know actually that I'm an AA, but, uh, and, and that I am a double winner, as we call those of us who do both programs. But um, many of them will have a glass of wine at dinner. Uh, that wasn't what I would have had, of course. But, uh, uh, but at any rate, she, when, when she said, I think you're an alcoholic, I was like, what? 
And uh, she said, I think you need to go to AA. And so she asked if anybody in the group would accompany me to my first meeting. And a couple people in that counseling group said yes. And so May 24th, 1976, I walked into my first AA meeting and I never looked back. I mean, it was, it was miraculous. It was similar in many respects to that first Al-Anon meeting uh, because there were, but this time there were like 200 people, men and women. And, um, and I, I looked around, they were all in their 30s and 40s. And so was I, I was 36. And I looked around and I thought, my gosh, I, I mean, here's exactly what I thought. It's almost embarrassing. I thought, oh my God, Karen, you've always been looking at the wrong places for men. Here they are. <laughs> Here they are. They don't even drink. And so, so I looked around at all these good looking men and I thought, aha, uh -huh, I am going to come back here. And uh, <laughs> that's, and, that's, and that's exactly what I thought. And uh, and you know, I, I think if all we need at that very first meeting is a good reason to come back to the second meeting. And that was my reason. And, uh, and you know, here I am uh, almost 47 years later and uh, 46, more than 46 and a half years later, here I am still going to AA meetings. So it, it, it doesn't matter what gets us to come back. It's that we continue to come back. So and you keep uh, going, keep going, right? Keep going, you keep absolutely. going. I, yeah, I cannot imagine my life. Uh, I, I mean, it just, it just wouldn't be complete without going to all of these meetings. You know, I look forward to them. A, a number of them are on Zoom these days because we started putting meetings on Zoom. You know, during the quarantine. And um, I go to a Saturday morning in-person meeting here in Minneapolis, but I go to, um, I have eight meetings a week and the rest of them are on Zoom. One of those meetings is actually a Course in Miracles group that I facilitate, but so, so uh, you know, Zoom has been such a, a blessing, really, for so many of us. So, but, so my, you my get... journey has been rich and interesting and full of things I never had ex would have expected. So you go to AA and did you stop drinking when you went? Absolutely. I had a bottle oh. of Jack Daniels sitting on the counter at home. I never even gave a thought to having another drink. I poured that out. That I, that I was one of the lucky ones because I know that there are a lot of people that go to meetings and, and still struggle, either struggle by having little short little relapses here or there or are just kind of pounded by, the, by wanting to continue to drink even though they're not drinking. None of that was my story. The desire to drink was absolutely gone. And um, I mean, it, it just felt miraculous that it was totally gone and wow. um, yeah 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 i mean I, I think back on how my life has really unfolded it, it's and but you know there were a lot of things 
that a lot of heartache along the way too. You know, it's like struggles in the family and with sexual abuse when I was young and, you know, but I look at all of that too as having made its own, its own mark on my life that helped me to grow in a new direction. So, um, you know, so I've, I've figured out, I guess I've just kind of figured out how to weave all of those experiences into that tapestry that really is my picture. So sure. I didn't, one thing that I didn't, um, that one thing that I struggled with a lot, though not, I didn't struggle a lot to drink. I struggled to feel the presence of God. You know, as when I came yeah. in, as I said, I did not believe in God. Yeah. And and I I knew that ultimately that was um, a relationship I needed to develop, but I didn't know how to do it. And um, I I knew that when I went to meetings and went out to, for coffee or dessert after a meeting with people, I felt really connected because of all of those people. And then I'd go home and I'd feel really lonely. And um, mm. so it was quite a struggle. And ultimately that's what um, led me to journaling a lot to, because through writing, I knew that something happened for me as a, when I was writing. And all of those, and that journaling is what ultimately, ultimately became each day in the beginning. But after I was in AA for about 18 months, I, and I really planned to take my life. And mm. um, it was just a matter of fact thing. You know, I didn't think it was a big deal. Um, it was just, you know, it's like, um, I wasn't going, I, for about a week, I didn't go to meetings. I didn't go teach my classes. I didn't go to my own classes. I just hunkered down in my apartment and felt like I don't want to go on. Like lots of people who end up at least contemplating suicide. And so I- So tell me a little more about that. Can you tell me a little bit more like how you kind of got through that or- Yeah, I'll tell you. Yeah, yeah, what happened was I- I, um, rolled up all my towels to put, to tuck in around all the windows in my one bedroom, $100 a month apartment. And that's how long ago that was. I mean, you, can you imagine an apartment, a nice apartment for $100 a month? And um, wow. I was going to turn on the gas. And I was just kind of sitting there in the kitchen, um, not thinking about its impact on anybody because it just didn't seem to matter. And then there was a knock at the door. And, uh, and it was a very surprising knock because I had not expected anybody at all. And it was very persistent. And I went over to the door and I said, who's there? And this woman's voice said, it's Pat and we have an appointment. And I, I said, an appointment for what? And she said, I'm a financial planner and we made an appointment to talk about your finances. <laughs> wow. With a hundred, 
$1,000 a month apartment. And I was learning, yeah. earning a very lowly salary at the University of Minnesota. And so, uh, but it was strange. I, I felt compelled to open the door because she was so insistent. And she pulled out her daily planner, which was what everybody used back then. That was before we had our, our dates on our telephone, a daily planner. She opened it up. Sure enough, there was my name. And it was like, what? How could we have made an appointment? I've never seen you before. I don't know you. And then she she just came right on in, uh, as though I had welcomed her with open arms. And uh, she she looked at me and said, "Are you okay?" And I said, "Well, no, I'm really very very depressed." And she said, "Oh," and she she said, "Well, you know, I I understand depression. I've been there." And she said, my husband is a recovering alcoholic and he suffers from depression too. And so she kind of just um, sat, sat herself down in my kitchen. And um, she said, you know, uh, she said, I've come to believe that when we're really feeling that kind of depression, we're really on the precipice of a new spiritual awakening that it's really God calling to us to trust that he can help us. But she said, you have to be willing to let go of your fear and reach across this abyss. She said, are you feeling this abyss in front of you? And I said, I sure am. And she said, well, God is on the other side. And so she said, reach across. And that's where God is. And she said, I, you're going to be fine. And she said, there's a name that people give to this. She said, I, I've read a book called The Dynamic Laws of Healing. And she said, it's called chemicalization. But she said, it's, it's really when we are on the precipice of a new spiritual understanding. And she said, God is trying to reach you. And honestly, God... At that, she stood up and she walked toward the door and she looked back and reached for me and put her arms out and, and gave me a, a little hug and said, you know, Karen, you're going to be just fine. God is here right now. And with that, she walked out. And I never, ever had seen her before. And of course, I never saw her again. And you know, I, I had, I don't think I had ever given a thought to the possibility of angels on assignment prior to that, but somehow it was like, where did she come from? Other than the fact that she was sent. Because we definitely had not made an appointment to talk about finances. They never, other than her saying that when she knocked on the door, other than her showing my name in her book, the word finance was never mentioned when she was in my house. That is an amazing story. It was an amazing story. And you know, I, it, it was so helpful and it, it was so comforting. Now, 
I'd like to say I never ever doubted again, but that would be a lie. Because, you know, I think that our spiritual growth comes in, it's incremental. She left yeah. and I felt absolutely comforted and full of belief. But I knew that I really had to work on that. I had to keep reminding myself that God was present. And, you know, I read a book that was so important to me. And this was before I ever started to write this book. I read um, the musical Mystical Bear by Matthew Fox. And because I, it, it was like, how do I ever, <coughs> how do I reach God? And Matthew Fox said in the musical Mystical Bear, you just make God your friend. You take a walk and talk to God. You sit down with a cup of coffee and you talk to God, excuse me. <coughs> yeah. And that, that was really so helpful. But what it led me to, you know, let me, let me mute myself for a moment. I love that you're sharing about the God struggle um, that, you know, in my own journey, I've had some, some challenges with, with God. That was my big struggle for a long time. I feel like, I feel like we're kindred spirits uh, on that. And, and it's, it's been a journey for myself. Um, what I've found what I found with the God, I had gotten involved in recovery, 12 step. I, you know, I, when I read your whole list of books that you've written, I'm like, oh, that's me. That's me. <laughs> and, and I was like, oh my God. But what I found was I struggled with the God piece. And I think the greatest part of these, the 12 step group, whatever one you decide to go is they start to love you before you love yourself. And they say higher power, things like that. And I struggled with that for a little while. What I really found helpful, and I'll share this with you before, and then I want you to share what, what kind of was a turning point for you with the God stuff was I did the inventory and I did it thoroughly. And I sat down with somebody like it talks in the 12 steps, right? And he started to say some things to me. That he asked me questions like, hey, are you 100% sure it happened that way? Or this, you know, he goes, well, did you have all the information there? And I started to shift my perspective. And I'm like, well, really not. And I started to think to myself, Karen, like, this guy is another recovering person too he's another you know alcoholic right he's not anything special but how is this shift creating in this room today that opened the door and i said this must be something a power greater than myself and i found and it talks about it in the literature they say 
in every person there is a fundamental idea of god it's just been blocked by pomp calamity and a love of other things so when we start to unburden that right or we start to expose it or we start to bring it to light then god starts to work through us and we have that connection and there's a lot of references in the book god doesn't make two and two hard terms with those who seek him right but we i never sought him because you know what i mean so that was my experience with kind of the god the god stuff so um i love your story that that, like that is like the craziest story like you're ready to really kind of go which is oh my god and this person that's financial comes and knocks on your door and in my head as you're sharing this story i'm like if that's not god i don't know what is right (laughs) yeah right well and you know i had another experience prior to that where and it didn't even occur to me at the time the power of it um when i had written my dissertation and i stopped drinking before I went into AA. I actually uh, went through my the graduation in 1979. I got sober in, in 76. So and I got sober because I realized I was not going to be able to write my dissertation unless I changed that part of my life. So at any rate, I had written my dissertation and all of the professors had read it and approved it but one. And he just, and he didn't uh, disapprove of it. He just never, never gave me the high sign. And finally, I set up an appointment with him. And I I went in, and he just kind of glowered at me, didn't even invite me to sit down. And I said, uh, Mr. Geffen, I said, my orals are set up for three weeks from now. And I, I need to know if you're ex- if you accept my dissertation or not. I mean, you know, I spent over a year writing this 300-page dissertation, and he said, uh, he said, well, it's not my fault your orals are in three weeks, and he said, uh, I think this just needs to be rewritten. And it was like, what? I mean, I just stood there, absolutely frozen. It's like you are saying I need to rewrite uh, the five other people on the committee passed it glowingly and you say it needs to be rewritten. And, and I don't know where the words came from, but I said, would you, um, would you consider going through things with me and tell me where you are finding things objectionable? And uh, he kind of roughly said okay and so then I I sat down although he had still not invited me to sit and uh, we spent three and a half hours talking except I never heard a word he said and I never heard a word I said A a conversation occurred where he asked questions and I supplied answers. And it was like out, an out-of-body experience. Huh? I was like up here watching this thing happen. And it was, wow. it was like, oh my God. I mean, I was, I truly wasn't hearing it. I wasn't, 
I didn't feel like I was a participant. It, it just simply had. And at the end of three and a half hours, he said, perfect, signed it and handed it over. And I got up and walked out of there thinking, I don't know what just happened, but I do know that God must have come to my aid. And that predated Pat, you know, that, but I knew that somehow there was this presence at that point. And I was going, like I say, I was in AA at that point. And I was struggling, but that happened. And I remember I left and I, that was when there were only pay phones around and I found a pay phone and I called Joe, my husband now. And uh, I said, I don't know just what happened. All I know is that everything is a go. And I, it was like an out-of-body experience. So, you know, I wow. think that it really is when, when, when we're told in, in the book that God does do for us what we can't do for ourselves. It's true, by golly, it's true. You know, I, I look at my journey from, from the get-go. I look at my journey from the time I was a kid. I, I think of my that first drink at 13, that somehow that was all part of what needed to happen. And God was part, not that God made me take a drink. I don't believe God makes things happen. But I, I think that that we're always in that presence, being ushered along to where we need to go. And um, when it reached a point, though, of my just needing desperately to find that more constant presence, and I was journaling every single evening. And then it becomes a book that I had never intended it to be. It's like, how do you explain that? And that's how that book came to be, that's Karen? Right. Well, you know, what had happened is after I finished my, my doctorate, I had had, uh, Joe and I had had supper with one of his sisters. He has seven sisters. With one of his sisters and the man she was dating at the time, who happened to be working at Hazelwood, which is a treatment center here in Minnesota. And he said, you know, they have a publishing arm. Because I said, I want a job as a writer. And he said, well, why don't you contact Hazelwood and see if, if, if they have any jobs for writers? So I contacted Hazelwood and they said, no, you know, that's, we don't hire writers. That's not the way. We only do work with people external to our organization. But they said, we could hire you in a different capacity. So, so they did. And uh, and so I got to know the, the president of Hazelton. Uh, I mean, he knew I was in recovery and he was just a very nice, nice man. And he asked me, you know, how I was doing in my recovery because I was about three, oh, three and a half years sober when I went to work there. And I, I said, well, I, I struggle with my with having a, the kind of relationship with God that other people seem to have. So I'm journaling a lot about it and it's, it's helpful. And so that's kind of all we talked about. And, 
And sometime after that, he approached me again and said, you know, tell me, are you still journaling? And I said, oh, yeah, I journal every night. And I said, it's giving me a sense of God's presence. And he said, well, would you mind sharing with me sometime what you journal about, or is it too private? And I said, oh, no, I'd, I'd be happy to show you. And I did. And um, he came back to me a couple weeks later and said, you know, Sean, I think we need to turn this into a book. Because he said, I, I think that this is a book that would speak to a lot of women. And so that's how it came about. And, and it was wow. really funny, Todd, because uh, other people at Hazelden who were in charge of the whole uh, publishing and printing of books thought the whole idea of a book for women was stupid. <laughs> Why? Why do we need a book for women? And these men who all felt that way were men in recovery, but they thought, why is it, why would women need their own book? After all, can't they read 24 hours a day? Which is a good book, you know? But at any rate, yep. so they, they said, okay, well, we'll, we'll print up 10,000 copies, but we'll never get them sold. Well, those 10,000 copies were sold before they ever even got delivered to the warehouse. And so wow. that was the beginning of them saying, oh, there is a need. For a book for women. So, you know, it was, I mean, you know, it just still kind of stuns me how that all came about. And I, I do not doubt for one second it came about because of the intention of God. And, and it didn't wow. mean that at that time I was really that much of a believer. You know, I, I really, as I have aged, I have come to embrace the idea that, you know, God doesn't care if we don't believe in his presence. He will be present in me. You know, I, I really, uh, and I think that his expectations, he or her expectations of us, because I, I really don't think of God as a he. But it's, you know, it's so hard to kind of figure out how to, how to use gender, but not use gender. So I, I don't think that, that God, uh, God will always be present, whether we take notice or not. And I believe God always was. And, wow. you know, I just, it just gives me uh, such a sense of well-being. That those days, even still, after all these years, those days that I wake up and I have some doubt about God or doubt about what is my life supposed to be about today? And this is kind of where the Course in Miracles kind of comes in too, Todd. Mm -hmm. Because 35 years ago, I became a student of the Course in Miracles and started reading and studying the Course. And very early in the course, uh, on page 28, in fact, there's a prayer that says, I am here only to be truly helpful. I am here to represent him who sent me. I do not have to worry about what to say or what to do, because he who sent me will direct me. I am content to be where he needs me. 
and he'll be there with me. And so, and, and so, you know, I, I really, when I wake up and I have those, those thoughts or those doubts about what's next for me, it's like, just how can I be helpful today? Because I really feel that that is an idea that's so consistent to my entire spiritual program. 12 steps in the course. How can I be helpful? What is kindness? How can I be a symbol of kindness wherever I go? Because everything is either an expression, according to the course, of love or fear. And my dad, who was so, so uh, embroiled in fear, found it so hard to be an expression of love. And so, you know, the Course says to us, when you, when you meet somebody on your path who seems angry, you're probably afraid. Just be kind to them. And, you know, that simplifies it. And I don't know, maybe it's partly it, as you age, and I'm a whole lot older than you, Todd, but as, as one ages, Doggone it, you just want your life to be easier. You know? Yeah, yeah. I, I love what you just shared from The Course of Miracles. And for those people that don't know what The Course of Miracles is, can you just give us a brief synopsis of, of, of what that is so yeah. people want to investigate that further? Yeah. And, uh, and also I'll mention that one of the... I've written a book about everything. <laughs> one of the books that I, I wrote uh, three or four years ago was 52 Ways to Live the Course in Miracles. And, uh, and but the course was, um, it, it started in a most interesting way. Um, Helen Shookman, it, at Columbia University Medical School, there were two individuals, Helen Shookman and Bill Thetford. And they were colleagues who, who struggled to actually get along with each other. And um, both of them were non-believers. Uh, they were both atheists. Um, she, uh, they were both Jewish. Uh, she would uh, argue with everything he said. And, um, one day they had a big staff meeting with all the rest of their uh, group their, because they were psychologists. And uh, on the way home back or on the way back to their office, Bill said to Helen, because he was so exasperated by the constant conflict with the bigger group of people in their department. And he said, I don't know what we're going to do. But he said, there's got to be another way. And Helen, so much to his surprise, and all of this is written in the introductory parts of, of A Course in Miracles. And as you can see, my actual book of A Course in Miracles has been it's falling <laughs> apart. It's been read so many yeah. times. But at yeah. any rate, at any rate, Helen said to him, I'll help you find it. 
And that was such an unusual response for her to have made. And, and a few days later, when she was home that evening, she and her husband, I mean, they, uh, her husband, interestingly, never knew any of her history with the courts. Uh, a few days later, a few evenings later, she called Bill at home and said, Bill, I just heard a voice. And a voice, she said, it's so strange. <clears throat> this message came through to me and it said, this is a course in miracles, please take notes. And she said, I, I think I might be losing my mind. And he said, no, I don't think so, Helen. You know, don't worry about it. Just take notes and bring them into the office tomorrow and we'll look at them together. Which she did. She took shorthand and she would hear. And it was, she never wanted to call it automatic writing, but she would just hear this message come through, which she came to believe was from Jesus, which she didn't even believe in Jesus at that time. But she believed because at one point he said, you know, nobody understood my message before. And hopefully you will help to get this message across. It's about love. We're here to love one another. And so she began for seven years every night and on weekends too for seven years she took notes and she would take them into bill and he would type them up that's what became the course in miracles wow and, and you know Thanks. it's it was one of those things where when i was first introduced to the course in 1981 that was before it was in a one volume. They had put, there were, it was in three volumes then. They had the text in a volume, the workbook, which is the lesson for each day, just like a meditation book in a way. And then a manual for teachers, which really isn't a manual for teachers per se, but a, a, a guide for how to understand terminology. But mm -hmm. all three parts she heard and took down the notes. And then an interesting thing too, the person who came into their life, who became the editor of the book was Jewish. The woman who came into their life who ended up publishing this was Jewish. And it was as though they were all brothers and sisters of Jesus. <laughs> I mean, that sounds, I can't even believe I'm saying that. I would not have believed any of this. I mean, oh it's, it's, like, it's like when I first started studying it, it was like, holy crap, because that isn't where my mind was at all. So yeah. I don't even think of it that way. I just think of it as a message for helping us all to live our lives more lovingly. And why I ended up writing, I first of all, in 1995, I Hazelden asked me at that point if I would write, I had written a number of meditation books for them. And they said, would you write one for A Course in Miracles? 
And I said, even though I'd been studying it for a long time by then, I said, well, it seems like a, a hard order, but I'll give it a try. And so I just mm-hmm. approached it like any other thing. I just sat and, and kind of let the message come out. And then, um, and you know, it's been, it's been actively selling ever since as a way to help people try to understand the course because it, you know, I, and when I wrote this, um, again, it was, I was asked by Canaria, the publisher that published this, can you write something that might be more um, like a handbook for people so they can understand the course? So that's why this is 52 ways because it's like 52 weeks of studying. And there have been a whole bunch of study groups that use this for a week at a time, I mean, for a year at a time. And there is a whole group of women from Hastings, Minnesota here who have been studying it for three years together. There are three or four groups here in Minneapolis that have been studying it for five or six years together. Ever since it was published, I did a, a talk about it at, at the retreat, which is a treatment center here in Wyzetta, Minnesota. And so all of these study groups developed from that. But this is taking the principles of the course, like every loving thought is true, everything else is an appeal for healing and health. And I wrote a chapter about it. That's one of the most basic ideas in the course. Every loving thought is true. Everything else is an appeal for healing and health. And it's, it, it's, you know, if we could go to through our lives remembering that mostly people are appealing for help that we encounter, that most of the attacks that we see people make on one another are from the ego. And the ego is very afraid. Now, there are some uh, some ideas in the course that are really uh, kind of far-reaching for people. The idea that that the ego uh, isn't actually that that the ego created this classroom that we're in, and that the truth of the matter is we're still spirit. That that's our true existence is that spirit. And, and I, I love that idea, but mostly I live in my ego in this classroom where it's so easy to get into judgment and criticism, you know, of, of other people. But then I realize that I have to stand back and say, you know, there, I, I'm doing it again too. I'm letting the ego hold me hostage instead of being a voice for love. I love, I love that about learn, you know, I think a lot of people cringe a little bit. Like I was talking to another person, we were talking about healing through giving. I had Stephen post on uh, the other day and listen to his podcast. Um, and, and I can feel it too. Like sometimes we're like, oh, when we talk about love, there's so many connotations about what love can mean and interpretation, but you know, it kind of goes back to really just loving one another and getting back to what you you said is oftentimes viewing 
people in a way of hurt people hurt people, right? Right, absolutely. <laughs> and having that mindset of being understanding and shifting that perspective, I think is super helpful. But I'll tell you, the all the books, you know, we could check out on the website. We'll have them posted in the show notes for sure. And all, all the work that you've done helping women, women talking, you know, about codependency. And that was a term too, um, that when did that come out in the seventies, right? Yeah, or, right. Or the first major book about codependency was written by Melody Beattie, Codependent No More. And Melody, it's so interesting. She and I were in a women's AA group together here in Minneapolis. And so I've known her for years. She doesn't live in this area anymore. She moved to Malibu years ago. But but yeah, that was the, and and I can remember at the time uh, that Hazelden was real resistant to publishing that book because they didn't like the name codependent and uh you know they didn't want to even publish a book with that title and uh and you know i mean i think that we are a a universe of codependent people we really are and i i think i agree i agree i agree you know it's funny i researched this when i was younger because i felt i had really unhealthy attachments yeah. I, I'm very similar to you. Like my relationships were, were not so good. And like the layman's term, like if I had to put it down, we basically you're addicted to people, right? Oh, right. It, 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 you're addicted to another person. So, um, you know, it, it's something to look at. You may not be addicted to drugs and alcohol where you're falling down and your life's unmanageable, but your life could really get unmanageable when you're addicted to what people are doing and, Absolutely. you know, for, for sure, right? Absolutely. You know, I really do think that those attachments to other people and letting those attachments define you, define how we feel. You know, I remember when when my first husband left, I remember, and, and like I said, that had not been a, a good marriage for so many reasons. But I remember standing in my kitchen and thinking, I don't even know what to cook. Because I always was trying to cook what he wanted me to cook. You know, I mean, stuff like that, you just realize how unhealthy those kinds of attachments are. And you don't even know you have done it. You don't Mm -hmm. even recognize it. And, um, you know, I, I think that codependency was my primary disease. I think that that is what led me to that first drink at 13, that I felt some relief from that codependency with that first drink. And then the two were so intertwined for years and years. And that's why as a, you know, that's why I love and I talk to um, my own sponsees, I talk to people all the time about going to Al-Anon along with AA. Because I think yeah. most people who are in AA, at least, also have codependency issues in their lives. 
that probably need to be addressed. And lots of people don't, don't want to embrace that idea. But, but yet more and more people, I think, are becoming easier with the idea of doing Al-Anon along with AA. Yeah, I agree. I think people are open more so now to a lot of different things. So I appreciate you so much sharing like these stories and like how the book came together and your story is just amazing. So before we end, for somebody that may be struggling with family dysfunction, um, uh, codependency, drug and alcohol addiction, what things would you, what key things would you recommend for them to just get started? You know, I, I, I am such a firm believer that we can't do this alone. We can't handle any, any of those issues all by ourselves. And we can't just read a book and become healed. That healing happens in a circle with other people. And so I, I really feel as though people who are struggling with anything need at least to seek a counselor who could give them some guidance. But simply go to a meeting, go to Al-Anon, go to AA, go to NA, go to Emotions Anonymous, go to whatever program is addressing whatever is creating the most inner turmoil for you, because it's only, I think, in that circle of like-minded people who truly understand who we are and where we're coming from. It's only in a group like that, that we can begin to see our way forward. Because what we're gonna hear in those groups, we're gonna hear stories like our own. And we're going to meet people who reach out their hand to us and say, let me help you. Let me tell you how it is for me. Let me help you walk this path. Let me sponsor you even temporarily so that you can get a good grounding. So I, you know, I just feel like, um, I just feel desperate. I feel sorry for people who just, stay stuck in their apartment or their condo or their house and, and just think, well, if I just read the right book, then I'm going to be okay. Because right. there are lots of right books out there. And I wouldn't, I, I would be the first to say to people, I've written a few books, but you're not going to get well just reading a book. I wrote. You're going to get well in the circle with other people. And I'm going to leave with this because I say this to people that I work with. You know, you could read a book all day long about swimming, right? But you're not going to learn how to swim until you actually jump in the water right. and swim. That's exactly right. right. That's exactly what I was saying too. You're so, <laughs> so true, right? A hundred percent. So. I am so grateful that you came on this podcast. We're going to have your website listed uh, in the show notes. Pick up her books. There are a ton of, there are a lot of them. There are but, a lot um, of them. I love, there are a lot of them. And so I encourage you to uh, 
you know, if you're having trouble, if you're feeling suicidal, obviously we talked about that. Get some help. Call nine one one. You know, oh, and get a counselor. You know, the new number, in fact, is nine eight eight. That you can talk to oh, somebody okay. immediately. And get some help if that's the crisis that you're in. But also, if you're thinking you're having a problem, reach out to a counselor. Go to a meeting. Hear somebody's story. Just get out and and get in that community and the one thing too we'll leave you with is you're not alone right right we are not alone we are not alone we are not alone thank you so much for coming on welcome todd i just thoroughly enjoyed it thank you so much